while we don't know the exact date on which Christ died, on our calendar, we tend to celebrate it this next week. I read recently in multiple surveys that people in the United States have lost their connection with the real meaning of Easter at a greater extent than they've lost their connection with the real meaning of Christmas. More Americans know the core meaning of Christmas, that it's not just about gifts and trees and Santa, that it's actually about the birth of Christ, than that no, Easter is actually about the resurrection of Christ, not bunnies and eggs and dresses and hats. People have lost that connection more than ever before. And while we'll admit as Christians we don't know the exact date, we have decided to mark his final week that often people call the Passion Week as this week, And next Sunday, we hope you'll gather here as we celebrate His resurrection. But as we try to piece together what happened during the last week of Christ's life, we use all four of the Gospels to try to see how it played out. And I'll just remind you, as you think through this next week, as you commemorate and remember the death of Christ on Friday, here's kind of how the week played out. On Sunday, we believe, was the day that he had his entry into Jerusalem. It's recorded in three of the four Gospels. We call it his triumphal entry. The crowds waved palm branches and recognized him as a king as he rode in. He was so popular that in John chapter 12, verse 19, on that day, it records that the Pharisees said of him, look, the whole world has gone after him. So on Sunday of this week, the whole world looked like it had gone after Jesus. On Monday, he goes in and clears the temple because people had turned it into a marketplace. And he turns over tables and makes a whip and drives them out. On Tuesday, he's back at the temple teaching and there's a great controversy. He has a run-in with some of the religious leaders. And then on Tuesday evening, we have one of his greatest teaching times ever, As a matter of fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, it takes up a whole two chapters. And it's as he makes his way out of Jerusalem back to Bethany, it's called the Olivet Discourse because he left the Mount of Olives and was headed there. That happened on Tuesday. On Wednesday, we don't know a lot about what Christ did, but we do know that the Sanhedrin, which was kind of like the Supreme Court in Jerusalem, they began to plot his death. On Thursday of this week, Jesus gathers his 12 disciples and has the last Passover meal and initiates the Lord's Supper to remember His death that's coming up. And then He goes to a garden called Gethsemane and has one of the most passionate times of prayer recorded in the Bible. On Friday, He's betrayed by Judas. He stands on what could be called a a joke of a trial before both Pilate and Herod. And the crowd turns completely against Him and begins to scream, Crucify, crucify, crucify. And that's exactly what happens. He's crucified and died and is buried. It's amazing to me that within five days in the same city, he could go from being so popular that it looks like the whole world has gone after him to being so hated that they're screaming, crucify, crucify, crucify. Same people, same town, same week. And on Saturday, we know nothing And on Sunday, he's resurrected and makes an appearance to so many. 
as I said, I'm amazed at how quickly the crowd could turn on Jesus in this week that we celebrate this very week. But you, when you read through the Scriptures, you come to realize this isn't the only time in the life of Jesus when a crowd turned on Him. Jesus said things that were offensive to people and crowds turned. Sometimes it was what He said, sometimes it was what He did, and sometimes it was what He refused to do that turned people from screaming, Hosanna, the King has come, to crucify, 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 all in one week. One of those was in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus is preaching at his own hometown synagogue, and at the beginning of the day, they're hanging on every word he says, and at the end of the day, they take him outside of town and try to push him off a cliff. And it happens all in one day. I want us to look at a place where Jesus starts out very popular, and ends unpopular in another place. I want to show you some people that abandoned Jesus long before Passion Week. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to John chapter 6? John chapter 6 has some of the most profound truths anywhere in the New Testament, all packed into one chapter. But what I want to do, and not look at the whole chapter, it's a very long chapter, but I want us to start at the end of the chapter and look at the crowd's response to Jesus. And then we'll back up and look at what he said that made them respond like this. I believe John chapter 6 is a bit of a preview of what's going to happen to Jesus during Passion Week. Because the way the people turn away from Jesus in John chapter 6 is very similar to the way they turn on Jesus during his last week of his life. If you found John chapter 6, look toward the end of the chapter. Verse 66 summarizes how the chapter ends. John records for us that after this, this being everything that happened in John chapter 6, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? This is a rough day in the life of Christ. At the end of John chapter 6, many of the disciples turned back and weren't interested in following Christ anymore. A disciple in the New Testament, by using that word, John means people who were following Christ. They weren't like the 12 disciples. Disciple literally in the original language just means a follower. So you could be a disciple of a certain rabbi. You could be a follower of a certain teacher. These people in John 6 were listening to Jesus teach. They were watching him do the miracles. They were curious about him, so they followed him from place to place. They were literally followers of Jesus in the sense that they physically followed and listened. They were interested, but not terribly committed yet. As the people listened and learned and were curious and were following, something Jesus said in John 6 made the vast, vast majority of them say, we're not interested anymore, and they left. It is a mass defection in John 6. The amazing thing is when John 6 opens, Jesus is preaching to 5,000 people. He's preaching to half of Weatherford. And we think they're actually just counting the men. When John 6 opens, he's preaching to these absolutely huge crowds, and he actually, at the beginning of John 6, because they've been with him so long and they're hungry, he miraculously feeds them. He takes a very small amount of fish and small amount of bread, 
multiplies it, blesses it, does the unbelievable, and feeds 5,000 men. It could have been a crowd up to the size of 20,000 if there were women and children there and they were only counting the men. Because he loves them. So the chapter opens with this huge crowd and it ends with almost all of them abandoning Jesus. Flip back in John chapter 6 to verse 14. I'll show you just how high it starts. In John 6, 14, it says, When the people saw this sign, that he had fed so many with such a small amount of food, they said, verse 14, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew. If you want to know how quickly it can turn, John chapter 6 covers two days in the life of Jesus. On day one, they say he's the prophet the Old Testament has promised. And, and whether he wants to be our king or not, we're going to make him be king. And at the end of John chapter 6, almost all of them have turned their back on Christ and they've deserted and walked away. Jesus does not want to be an earthly king, so he withdraws. But, but that's the span, church, of how, how crazy John 6 is. Prophet and king at the beginning. We don't want to have anything to do with you at the end. Something between verse 14 and the verses we read at the end of the chapter, Jesus said something that turns all these people away. At the end of whatever Jesus says in John 6, the people say, if that's what it means to follow Christ, I'm out. I'm out. I think I'll just go back home. Listen to me. We're going to read what Jesus said in John 6, but please understand this. If you follow Christ, you follow Christ on His terms, not yours. If I'm going to spend my life following Jesus Christ, I follow on His terms, not mine. If they want to walk away, watch this, Jesus lets them walk away. Chapter 6 opens with 5,000 people and it ends with about 12 and, and Jesus is not saying, hey, wait wait a minute, come back in here, let's rethink this. Maybe what I said that turned all of you away, maybe I can rephrase that. Maybe we can meet in the middle somewhere. There's, there's none of that in Christ. He lets them walk away. It's a tough day. And Jesus refuses to lower his standards for what it means to be a follower of Christ. He does have grace. He does have compassion. He would be totally willing to work with these people. But when he tells them, here's where we're headed, Here's who I am. And most of them say, then we're, we're done. We're not interested anymore. He lets them go back to their towns and villages and leave it. So as we begin this week that some call Passion Week, leading up to his death and resurrection, I wanted to show you a group of people that months before abandoned Christ. Much like the people in Jerusalem who were screaming Hosanna on Sunday or screaming Crucify on Friday. So in John chapter 6, I'll try to point out, there's more. I mean, it's a very long chapter. I just want to highlight four things that Jesus says in this chapter right before this mass defection. Same crowd. They want him king one day, and they desert him the very next day. What did Jesus say? So if you'll begin reading with me, we're going to read starting with verse 31, and we'll find these four things Jesus says between verse 31 and verse 48. 
In verse 31, after feeding them, Jesus left, went to the other side of the sea. They followed him there. They walked all the way around the Sea of Galilee, and that's where the second day takes place. And second day, verse 31, these people said to Jesus, our fathers, back in the Old Testament, ate the manna, which was the bread God provided. They ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it was my father who gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of heaven that comes from God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Here's here's, I think, the beginning of the problem. Number one. Jesus tells them the truth about Moses. These people had been fed by Jesus the day before one unbelievable meal. And folks, we have to, we have to rethink uh, and kind of put ourselves in their place. Uh, they got up every day wondering what they were going to eat that day. They didn't have what we have. Every day was, I wonder what we're going to eat today. And so for Jesus to come along and take 5,000 people and feed them all they want to eat. As a matter of fact, at the beginning of John 6, there's leftovers. And this is a culture where people rarely had leftovers. So Jesus feeds them all. They have all they want. They could have had more because there was still food left. And they didn't want any more. They had a day where they were totally full. And they followed Jesus around the Sea of Galilee to see if he'll do it a second day. And he starts to let them know he's not. It's not going to be a free buffet every day. That's not why he came. And they remind him that Moses fed God's people every day. Jesus, you've only fed us one day. But Moses fed God's people every day. So are you going to feed us again? And Jesus corrects their view of Moses. He tells them the truth about Moses. And he says, Moses didn't feed anybody. God did. You're wrong on the Old Testament. You're wrong on the facts. Moses is your hero. You guys think so much of Moses. You've read into that story of God providing manna in the Old Testament that Moses fed all those people for 40 years. Moses didn't feed anybody. He says it was God who fed them. Moses was their hero. I I think this is when Jesus started to kind of rub the crowd the wrong way. Have you ever tried to point out to somebody where they're wrong on the Bible? I mean, a dearly held belief they have. And you're like, can you, I mean, can you show me that in the Bible, why you believe that? And they're like, well, I don't know where it is. It's in there somewhere. And you're like, no, it's not. If it's in there, show me. As a matter of fact, I'll give you a week, look and find it. And, and they come back and they're like, okay, I thought it was in there and it's not in there. And you're like, yeah, that, that's not what the Bible teaches. And we owe it to each other in love and kindness to tell people if they believe something about the Bible that's not true, we owe it to tell them that's actually not biblical. That may be tradition, that may be custom, that may be what you want to believe, but that's not what the Bible says. And we say it in love, but we say it with conviction. Here's what the Bible says, and Jesus says, listen, you're wrong on Moses. I know you guys hold him up really high, and he was a great guy, but he didn't feed anybody. God's the one that provides. God's the one that feeds And I'll just encourage you for the things you believe so dearly and you hold to, make sure they're biblical and be humble enough that if somebody comes and says, listen, would you rethink that passage? Would you rethink that? Maybe you've always believed that and it's not right. I've had to have people do that in my life. Would you rethink? Would you think about that passage in light of this passage? 
And Jesus had the courage not to let them keep on believing something in the Old Testament that wasn't true. Moses, Moses, Moses. He's like, no, it wasn't Moses. God's the provider. Guys, if you have a good meal today, it's because God provided it, right? If I, if I have a good meal today, he may have used somebody else. There may have been another tool. There may have been a Moses in between God and I, but ultimately God's the one that provides. Jesus says God gave bread to people in the Old Testament and he'll still give bread even better than that. He says he'll give true bread today. He says, I, I'm the bread from heaven. I'm better than the manna. And I bring life to the world. So the first thing, he tells them the truth about Moses. But look at verse 35. He's not done there. After straightening them out about Moses, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. This is one of his great I am statements in the Gospel of John. Whoever comes to me shall not be hungry, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Jesus, after telling them the truth about Moses, tells them the truth about life. He tells them the truth about life, and he says this, I'm the bread of life. Life will leave you empty, folks. Life will leave you unsatisfied. You can chase lots of other things that you think will fill this hole in your life. And Jesus comes along and says, listen, I'm actually the bread of life. Only I can satisfy you. And when you grab me, he actually makes such a bold claim, you'll never be hungry again. Christians, we should be the most satisfied, content people in the world. If this is true. If you'll take me as the bread of life, you'll never be hungry and you'll never be thirsty again. Jesus used bread because bread was the staple food in their diet back then. They ate bread every day. They probably ate bread at every meal. That's why Jesus could use bread at the Lord's Supper, because they ate bread at every meal. When he fixes them food, sometimes it's fish and bread, but it's always bread. Bread was part of their diet. It was the core basic thing. It was the staple food. And Jesus is saying, you know what you need every day or you're hungry? Bread. Spiritually, that's what I am. I'm what you need every day. You know, some parts of the world, bread's not the staple. There's parts of the world where it's like rice. Every meal they eat rice. I think if Jesus had been speaking to those people, he could just as easily have said, I'm the rice of the world. I'm what you eat every single day. For these people, it was bread. I think I've told you before, we went on a mission trip years ago, took several teams to Africa. The career missionary in Africa told us they have a food they eat every single meal, breakfast, lunch, and supper. It's called insema. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's like maize that they grow, and then they grind it, and they cook it. <clears throat> he said they cook it usually till all the nutritional value is gone, and it's, it's like, the, it's like the, the consistency of oatmeal. And they eat it every single meal. And I remember thinking, not every meal. I mean, I have stuff I love, but I don't want to eat it every single meal. Three times a day, 365 days of the year. We got over there, and he wasn't kidding. It was every single meal. And it tasted horrible. 
I remember one, a good friend of mine that went on the trip. We, we, were, we were sitting down eating, and, and it's such a, where we went was such a primitive country, they still cooked over open fires every meal. Just build a campfire and cook. And they had worked hard and cooked a meal, and they fixed this in SEMA. And my good friend I was sitting next to, he took a big bite of it, and you could just tell the look on his face. I mean, his taste buds were like shoveling backwards. And he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw up. And I said, you're going to swallow. <laughs> and I remember he looked at me. He, he had moved it over to one side of his mouth. <clears throat> and he said, my, my brain is saying swallow. My throat is saying never. It's like a battle going on inside me. And I said, you, you have to swallow that. They eat this every day. I know we don't think we're better than they are, but if you can't eat what they eat every day, it's going to come across like I'm, I'm better than you. I don't, eat, I don't eat what you eat. You have to swallow that. Every single day they ate it. Every meal. In Jesus' time, it was bread. So for Jesus to look at these people and say, that which you have to have every day or you go to bed hungry, that's what I am for your soul. You'll, you'll go hungry the rest of your life without me. I am the bread of life. Folks, sometimes we look lots of other places for bread. I'm grateful God gives us hobbies we enjoy. If you think your hobbies can be the bread of life and satisfy you for a lifetime, you're crazy. I'm grateful for, for good friends. I, I need good friends. I, I'm grateful for good family. If you think that friends and family or a job you like can be the bread of life and satisfy you for a lifetime, you're mistaken. I, I, I'm, I'm grateful that my spouse is my best friend. If I expect Wendy to carry the weight of being the bread of life for me, she can't bear that. I can't bear it for you. I'm grateful for hobbies and friends and family and jobs and all, all the good stuff God gives us, but that's not the everyday thing. The everyday thing we have to have, the bread of life, is Christ. And you can, you can spend your life chasing other things and you'll come back empty and hungry every time. And Jesus looks at these people and he says, I'll tell you the truth about Moses. He didn't feed anybody. God did. And I'm going to tell you the truth about life. You can spend the rest of your life hungry and empty or you can come to me. I'm the bread of life. I can satisfy. Later in this chapter, Jesus is going to tell them, you actually have to eat and drink me. He doesn't mean it literally. But he's saying spiritually, you have to take me all the way in. Guys, there are people in life that think they can have Jesus in their life and he's just an extra. That it, everything that's orbiting in their life, they put Jesus on one of the outer orbits in their life of all that's going on. And Jesus says, no, you actually have to eat and drink me. You have to take me all the way in to the very center of who you are. I'm the bread of life. I'm not an extra. God asked in Isaiah 55, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Isaiah is saying the same thing. You can chase lots of things that you think is bread. You can spend your life and your fortune chasing those things and you'll still have this gnawing emptiness. Or you can come to the bread of life and I give it freely. Jesus tells the truth about life, and he says, only I can satisfy. He tells the truth about Moses and says, God's the one who provides, not Moses. Let me give you a third one. He tells the truth about himself. Very next verse, look at verse 37. Keep walking through what Jesus said. 
He tells the truth about himself. In verse 37, he says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus says, let me tell you the truth about myself. And He really tells them three things about Himself. He says, I came down from heaven. As a matter of fact, He says that over and over in John chapter 6. I came down from heaven. So He tells them His origin. I'm not from earth. I'm from heaven. Second, He says, I always do my Father's will. I came down from heaven, and I always do what God tells me. So he tells him his mission. And then he says, I won't lose anybody who believes in me. He talks to them about his power. His origin is from heaven. His mission is to do the Father's will. And his power is, everybody who puts their faith in me, I'm so powerful, I won't lose even one of anybody who puts their faith in me. In verse 39, he says, the will of him who sent me, God's will, is that I don't lose anybody. Folks, if you can genuinely put your faith in Christ, genuinely become a Christian, and God lose you, you're saved today, and next week you're lost. You're headed for heaven, and then because of something you did or God giving up on you, you're lost. If Christ can have you, and then lose you, then he failed to do God's will. Because Jesus says, the will of him who sent me is that I don't lose any. If he loses one, he failed. And Jesus says, I do not fail. Listen, I fail. I fail every day. And if you're honest, you admit you mess up and you fail every day. And Jesus says, I will not fail. If a million people put their faith in me, a million people will get to heaven. I won't lose any. So he says, I came down from heaven. That's my origin. I always do the Father's will. That's my mission. And I don't lose anybody. That's how powerful I am. So if you guys want to follow me, that's who I am. I'll tell you the truth about Moses. I'll tell you the truth about life. And I'll tell you the truth about myself. I'm not going to lose anybody. You know, I, I'm afraid we're going to look up one day and be one of the last few churches believing that Christians are secure. Because most, even most churches in Oklahoma who claim to be Christian churches believe you can lose your salvation. I have no idea what they do with John 6. Folks, it's not that we're hanging on to Jesus. It's that Jesus is hanging on to us. And he says, I won't, I won't lose you. You put your faith in me. I've got you. I'll carry you all the way through. I want to show you something you may have never noticed. Um, John chapter 6 is one of the places it shows up. Look again at verse 37. There's something interesting here. In verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me. In verse 39, He says, I'm going to lose nothing of all that He has given me. Jesus is saying, somehow in salvation, the Father had you and He gave you to the Son. He gave you to Jesus. We don't have to turn there right now, but you, you can find the exact same language in John 17. 
When Jesus is praying in John 17 and verse 2, he says this in his prayer. I have given eternal life, Father, to all of whom you have given me. And he says in verse 6, Father, the people whom you gave me, they were yours and you gave them to me and I've given them eternal life. I don't know exactly how all that works. I just know Jesus talks about it quite often. At one time you were God's and he gave you as a gift to the Son. And the Son says, I've got you now. I'll never lose you. I'm not important because of who I am or anything about me. I'm important because I was a gift given from the Father to the Son. And he gave his Son a great gift, a love gift, and it's believers. And the Son says, I've got you now, and I won't lose any. Jesus tells the truth about himself, and he says, here's what you need to know about me. You need to know where I'm from. I'm from heaven. You need to know who I obey. I don't obey you. I don't obey the Sanhedrin. I don't obey the Pharisees. I obey the Father. And you need to know that I have the power to keep you. Look at the next verse, verse 41. The people start to grumble. This is the crowds beginning to turn against him now. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say that he came down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. The crowd's beginning to turn. They're like, we're not sure we believe you, Jesus. You say you came down from heaven, but we think we know your mom and dad. If we know your family, how can you claim to be from heaven? You grew up with us. We know your hometown. We know your brothers and sisters. And Jesus like, no, you, you know my mom. You don't know my dad. My dad is in heaven. Heavenly Father. So Jesus is straightening them out and the crowd's beginning to turn. He's told them the truth about Moses. They didn't really like it. He's told them the truth about life and they're chasing life and bread everywhere else. And he said, I'm it. I'm the bread of life. And then he tells them the truth about himself. I'm from heaven. I obey the Father. And I'm so powerful, I won't lose any of you. The final thing he tells them is the truth about God. And it's in verse 44, next verse. He says, don't grumble, verse 33, among yourselves. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. After telling him the truth about Moses and the truth about life and the truth about himself, he says, before you guys take off, I want to tell you the truth about God. And he tells him this. If you really want to follow me, if you really want to be my disciples, if you really want to be saved, if you really want to be one of mine, you don't make the first move. He says in verse 44, God has to draw you or nobody comes. Nobody comes for salvation unless the Father draws them. In verse 44, we have to be drawn by God. In verse 45, we have to hear from God and learn from God. 
God has to draw us. God has to speak to us. God has to teach us. And then in verse 47, we have to do our part. We have to believe. You'll never get to verse 47 where you actually believe and have saving faith and put your faith in Christ unless he draws, teaches, and you hear from him. None of the 7 billion people on the planet today will be saved unless God initiates it by drawing them. In verse 65, at the end of this chapter, it gets even more clear because in verse 65, if you look at it, Jesus said to them, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. Jesus says, you don't even have the ability to come to me unless my Father grants it to you. Folks, people in John 6 didn't like Jesus saying this. There's people today that still don't like it being said. There are people today who believe, I'll come to Christ whenever I want to. I'm awful young right now. i got a long life ahead of me. I think I'll just put it off and get saved when I'm older. You don't get to decide the day He draws you. If God's drawing you and convicting you and enabling you and granting it you today for you to see things correctly and your heart is being drawn to God, today is the day that you need to, verse 47, put your faith in Him. To say, I'll put that off, maybe I'll do it next Sunday, maybe I'll wait, maybe I'll do it when I'm older, maybe I'll do it next Thursday, maybe I'll do it in 2030. If He's not drawing, you'll never come. You could live a thousand lifetimes, you'll never come unless He's drawing. You'll never make the first move toward God. So he's straightened them out about Moses. He's trying to straighten them out about life. He's told him the truth about himself. And now he's like, I've got to tell you the truth about God. This actually is all about God. God does love you. And if he draws you and invites you and enables you, you're utterly unable to get saved on your own. But if he does grant it to you and draw you, you must believe. And you must not put that off. The people that think they can get saved whenever they want are just wrong. God has to help us. God is the great mover in our salvation. You know, I, I read when Jesus, and we've just taken a part of John 6, but once Jesus begins to explain all this to them, they decide they're not interested. tell you the truth about Moses he didn't provide for anybody God did I'll tell you the truth about life I'm the bread of life please stop chasing everything else enjoy everything else God gives you but it's not the main thing that needs to be on your plate every day Jesus says I'll tell you the truth about myself <clears throat> if I save you I'll never lose you that's how powerful I am and I'll tell you the truth about God He's the one that has to draw and enable and grant. And if he does, please believe. And the people hear all of that in John 6, and they say, if that's what it means to follow you, we're not interested. And there's this mass defection as people walk away from Jesus, and he lets them walk. You know what John chapter 6 is doing? I think this is why it, it um, irritated the people. Jesus is highlighting how important God is and how hungry we are. And we sometimes think we're important and God's hungry for us. And He's the important one and we're the ones that are hungry. 
trying to scratch out satisfaction in lots of things that aren't bread. And over and over, Jesus is like, no, it's God that's important. It wasn't Moses, it was God that's important. Ultimately, it's not you, it's God. It's not you that keeps yourself saved, it's me, God's Son. That keep... He's highlighting the importance of God in John 6 and the hungriness of the people. And that hunger, when they realize this is who Jesus is, He's not just going to give us another free meal today like He did yesterday. He wants us to think of God in these terms as being higher than Moses and more important than us and the bread of life and we can't satisfy ourselves and he's hanging on to us and God has to draw and God has to initiate and the people are like, yeah, no. If that's the message, no thank you. And Jesus lets them walk away. However, the people who did stay found out that Jesus is actually the bread of life. Right? Those of you who know him, know that these people who walked away walked away from the bread of life. They walked away from the only thing that satisfies. Jesus says over and over in this chapter, I will raise them up on the last day. You know what he's saying? If you live long enough, you, that you outlive when Christ returns, one day you will die. And when you do, Christ says, I'm able to raise you up. I'm, I'm, I'm able to take care of you in this life. I'll be the bread of life. And I'm, I'm able to take care of you in the next life. I can raise you up to resurrection, to eternal life in heaven. That's Christ's message in John 6. And they walk. And he turns to the 12, because it's, it's, it's such a mass affection that he turns to the 12 and says, what about you guys? I mean, do, are you with them? Are you going to leave too? And the disciples are like, where would we go? I mean, I love Peter's answer. Where, where would we go? You have the words of life. Those people are crazy. They're leaving Sometimes when you're going to leave something, you have to look at what you're going to go to. And they're looking around, they're like, there's nothing like Jesus. We're not leaving, Peter says. You're the one that has the words of eternal life. So they stay. I think John 6 is a preview of how people quickly turn once they get a, an accurate view of who Jesus is. And in John 6, this is Jesus presenting himself. It's the most accurate view you can get. It's not me trying to tell you what Jesus is. It's Jesus telling the crowd who Jesus is. And when, they, when he comes into focus, and he's not just going to be the guy that gives them free meals, and it comes into focus who he is and what he thinks about Moses and what he thinks about life and what he thinks about God, they walk away. And months later, in Jerusalem, people are screaming, Hosanna, as he rides in. And a few days later, they're like, crucify him. People can turn so quickly. But for those of us who know Christ, he is the bread of life and he is holding on to us and he won't lose. Aren't you grateful? Aren't you grateful that he can satisfy and he can hang on to us even on our worst days? And he can raise us up on the last day. If you don't know that Christ, I want to invite you today to consider him as the bread of life. John 6. I don't know any better way to describe him. He is the one who came down from heaven. That's his origin. He always does the Father's will. He never disobeyed. That's why his death on the cross could be our substitute. He wasn't a sinner. He always did what Christ said. And he is the one who can satisfy us. If you know him as the bread of life today, as we sing our last song in just a moment, I encourage you to sing it thinking about the fact that you have the bread of life in you. If you don't know Christ, I'd invite you, even during this song or when it's over, catch me or catch our pastor Skyler, or catch someone here that you know that is a Christian and say, would you, 
would you visit with me? Listen, I promise you, rather than going to eat this food that doesn't last for lunch, we'd rather talk to you about the bread of life any day. If you don't know Christ as the one who can satisfy the greatest hunger in your life, today could be the day you would come to know him. But you do come on his terms, not yours. Let me pray. Father, John 6 is, um, is a well, is so deep. We just scratched the surface this morning looking at why some of these people turned. I thank you for the truth that's in it. I pray this morning that we would have maybe a little better view. I, I would pray, God, just by your grace, that these people here that you love so much might have been fed today spiritually from your word. If you would do that for them, I, I would be so grateful. I pray, Father, that we would follow you even when other people might desert. I pray we'd follow the real you, not a you that is the way we want to view you. I pray, God, that we would run to the Bible to know what we believe, why we believe it. I pray, God, if there's someone here today that has never experienced your grace and forgiveness, today could be the day they believe that you, in your great love, would be drawing them, helping them see, God, we'll never get saved unless we see sin correctly, unless we see forgiveness correctly, unless we see the cross correctly. None of that happens unless you draw and enable us to see it right. I pray someone today might see it right and want to give their life to Christ. And it's in his name we pray.